I don't know about you, but parenting isn't what I thought it would be. It's way more guilt, anxiety, and chocolate than I ever imagined. I'm so happy and proud of the family we've built, but at other times, I feel like I've lost myself along the way. Parents are human too. It may be one of us absolutely wandering the aisles of a hardware store pondering, what is this thing called parenting? Welcome, and we're so glad to share this brief part of our journey with you. We're a group of parents and professionals acknowledging all Coast Salish people on whose traditional and unceded territory we live, we learn, we play, and podcast. We'd also like to recognize Fraser House Society, our partner in making this thing called parenting possible. Welcome to Why Do I Have to Pay My Kid to Do Stuff? Part two on motivation. This is our lightning round, which if you know anything about us, you'll know that we are not good at keeping things short. So it turned into a whole episode. All five of us are here again, including our guest, Chad Outway. So let's just jump right in. Okay, so then we're just going to do a little lightning round right now. Come up with one of your ideas on how do we foster our children in connecting with their own intrinsic motivation? Any ideas or thoughts? It's okay if you don't have all the answers, because one of the things that we're actually doing is we're group processing a lot of these ideas about this thing called parenting. Knowing... There was knowing where the behavior comes from and why the adults are doing a certain thing in that moment ahead of time, front loading them a little bit. Like if it happened previously, having your children know that there was a reason for doing it. So that way, next time it comes up, they go, oh, yeah, I get it. And then eventually becomes a pattern of positivity. Now get. Can you give a concrete example, Lee? Of what you mean? Let's say you're at a dinner table and there's a discussion going on and you're trying with a larger family and you're trying to figure out why is there, why is there's bone of contention happening here? Why is there like this weird thing that's happening? And then you go back later and you talk to the youth and you say, you remember that time that this was going on? This is what was happening. And you had expressed yourself this way. Maybe you want to reframe that one because this is what was happening actually. So next time you have that come up, you'll understand where it's coming from. So that way you can lend a positive hand to what's going on. You can add what you know, because you're youth. You have lost, you have lots of value. You can give something to the table in a different perspective than just the adults. I love that. I love the common humanity that... Uh, one of my youth said this to me a couple of weeks ago at work and she was just like, she was kind of complaining or I was kind of justifying actually like how she had been kind of done wrong by, by quite a few adults in her life. And she was like, yeah, but Karen, at the end of the day, we're all just human beings. And this is coming from a 17 year old that saying this. And I was just like, wow, you're amazing. You just blew my mind. But I wish that everybody would see us, see ourselves and see our children as humans just doing their best, having that opportunity 
to participate and contribute, which is a huge element of resilience. That's what all the research shows. When you have a meaningful place to contribute with what you have to offer, even if that's just your opinion or your ideas or what you were thinking, that creates resilience. And that's obviously connected to motivation as well. That's awesome. I actually would want to go at it from, or what I will have to offer is from uh, the perspective of a special needs parent. And I was just talking to our behavioral analyst uh, for my child last week, and she was saying um, special needs strategies aren't for special needs kids. They're for everybody. It's just that special needs kids have more extreme versions of it, but they really work on everybody's behavior. And so um, when fostering motivation in my child, uh, I need my child's nonverbal. Uh, my child is low functioning. So, um, he's 10, but he functions at about a two-year-old level. And so, uh, sometimes for me, if I want to figure out what's motivating him and it's very challenging to figure out what motivates him, I find that a really interesting strategy is just to spend some time with him mirroring all of his behaviors. So if he's sitting in the garden and throwing dirt, I'm going to sit down beside him and throw some dirt. If it was a higher functioning child, that's a little bit older, who's just playing video games all the time. Personally don't like video games, but I would need to sit down and play some video games for a while and just kind of get in their world and figure out what's motivating them and what's not motivating them and, uh, and potentially have a discussion around that. If your child is verbal, which mine is not, but having that discussion and just kind of getting in their world and seeing, um, you know, my child throws everything everywhere all the time compulsively. Uh, and I've realized that feels really good for him. And that's actually a self-regulating activity that we do. So we have to create safety boundaries around it so that it can happen within reasonable parameters. Um, that's not a manipulative behaviorism. It's a get into their world, figure out what's going on and then walk alongside them. That's kind of picking up on what Lee was talking about, walking alongside them versus forcing them into a certain way. I love that. I think I'm due for some good throwing of things. That does feel good, right? <laughs> it's like we could maybe take some lessons from them sometimes. That's exactly what I was thinking cathartic. And how many things do we have to learn or unlearn about the parameters of what's expected of us versus truly paying attention to our internal motivation of like, ah, uh, or like, I would love to do that. I would be so pumped to like, just throw some stuff at something. Right. But I think, I think for me and what the, the major thing about motivation, and, and I don't want to take Chad's, your contribution there, because you, you keep talking about the feeling about connecting activities to feeling. And I think that's so, so critical is, is shifting our focus to results and highlighting the process or the feelings that kids are having, catching them doing something they love and making them pay attention in a real mindful way in that moment and divesting our focus on the end result. And I, th I think it goes on so many levels. And, and again, a lot of my perspective is with older teens, it's sort of moving into adulthood as well. But the other thing in terms of connection and Lee, you were talking about community and that's so important as well. And Karen, what you were just saying about going alongside your son and throwing dirt or um, going alongside your kid and you, you don't like playing video games. Mm -hmm but your kid lives for it. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be doing it all the time, of course. However, joining in with them, going alongside with your kid to continue that connection and that relationship. 
And that's going to be very motivating for your kid. So if you spend some time, like it's a whole Gordon Newfeld attachment, like collect, then direct. Your job as a parent, if you can sort of collect your child, make a connection. And one of the tricks that he talks about is get a nod, get something in agreement or meet them somewhere where they're at first and reestablish, collect that direct or that, that connection, um, collect that moment, collect them. Um, and, and then take a, um, and then once you have that connection, you remember, yeah, wait, we, we're not adversaries here. There's a bigger picture here. We are a family. This is a relationship. Now, from our relationship, I'm going to ask something of you. Okay, now I'm going to go forth and do that because I value our connection. I don't want to do that thing that you're asking of me. And maybe they're going to recognize too, like, I know you don't like playing video games, but <laughs> you're doing it with me. So it's that give and take, it's that relationship and valuing our kids and valuing their contribution. But I think the ultimately, and again, I've got a five-year-old, actually, no, six, she just turned six. Um, and and that at that age, I think it's a lot of that too. And it often involves like Barbies and, and you know, different things <laughs> hanging alongside and playing, but um, catching something catching them doing something that they love, just noticing it, fostering it, providing the space for that. And then paying attention to yes, how they feel and not the result. I think that's my my ultimate nugget that took about three points to make. I know. Sorry. And I just wanted to jump in. I love that piece that you're talking about with Gordon Newfeld. And I remember he specifically described it as wooing your child, like you would woo uh, an, a romantic partner at the beginning of your relationship where you might be, I don't know, like for me, I don't really love hockey that much, but I will get into hockey if somebody I'm interested in is playing hockey. And it's not, it's not manipulation. It's just that I like them. So I'm going to like hockey for a while. And it'd be the same thing with, you know, video games, if I don't like video games and I wanted to connect with a kid, I'm going to like video games uh, as, a, as their parent because I want to woo them. And, and that, that's the collecting piece that you were talking about. So that's great. Well, I actually, I work with younger children and older children. So I find this um, interesting um, because I, I got called out Oh, about 15 years ago at my work for taking too long to do attendance with students. And this was the um, four to six-year-old age group because I would have them come in, they'd sit down, I'd ask them to stand up. They could tell me anything they want. The children that were too shy to say anything, I'd ask them their favorite color or something, ask them their favorite something. So each week, whether it was a color or a, or a food or so that it would encourage them to speak and gave them a safe place to speak. Um, sometimes I heard lots of different things and it was a safe place because I heard about dad sleeping on couches. I heard all sorts of things and I would change it to, oh, great, what color is your couch? Um, so whatever these children were feeling when they walked into my classroom, it was a safe place to let it out because after that we could actually learn. I didn't feel that I could actually teach them when they came into a class and they already had all this, this energy, um, which was stopping their, their mind able to, to take things in. But I did get called out um, by my, my bosses at the time. And I tried to explain to them that if I don't make a connection with my students, then my students will not succeed. I, I find it quite interesting that 
now, now the schools are coming to that. Now my boss is, is coming to the realization. That was 15 years ago. When, when did you, <laughs> children should always have been listened to. When they come into a classroom, it doesn't matter what classroom, they should always be listened to and they should always feel important. I think that's a big part of helping them to be motivated. If they don't feel important, they don't feel what they're doing is important and they don't feel that anybody cares, then they're not motivated. They, they need that. And I will say when, with my younger students that are competitive, I do use external rewards for motivation in the, we, I send them home with a practice sheet, with a calendar, write down how much you practiced. Once you practice 30 minutes, you get a stamp at the end of the stamp page and you you might need 20 stamps. You get a gift from the gift box and it's all exciting. And we do this for the under tens to try to teach them kind of to motivate them until they realize that they really like it. And they realize, oh, after I practice this, after I work hard, I accomplish this. And I like the feeling of that. But to get there at a younger, young age, I needed to teach that so that they could learn to enjoy the feeling of learning. Mm. Another, another thing I wanted to say about the external is my son, um, he's athletic. He's not the best, but he enjoys it. He enjoys moving like I do. Um, a couple of years ago, he was in a, on a soccer team. He came home to me one day and said, will you pay me for any goals I score? And I thought, well, we're partway through the season. Where, would, where did this come from? Uh, and I said to him, well, why would I do that? Nobody does that. Why would we do that? And he said, well, my coach pays his son $10 for every goal he gets. Hmm. And I thought, well, and I, I really, really thought about this. I didn't want to say no right away. I really put a lot of thought into it. He was, my son was the leading goal scorer, but more importantly, he had the most assists on his team at that time. And we made a big deal about being, being a team player and having more assists to us was more important than having the most goals. So I said to him, if you really want us to pay you for, for a goal, we will do that. If, that. if you think that's going to make you a better player, we'll go along with this. Three games, no goals. And what happened was frustration and kind of losing the love of the game. But I felt it was important to do this to teach a lesson. And it was fantastic because we did talk about it afterwards and we talked and I, again, we asked him, well, I asked him, how did you, how did you feel? Why do you feel you didn't score any goals in those last three games? And he said, because it wasn't fun, mom. I was stressed. I said, right, because you weren't playing the game because you loved the game. You were playing it to make money. So it goes back to what Chad was saying right at the beginning is if you don't feel good about something, you're not going to be motivated. Money did not motivate my son. Feeling good about being part of a team, feeling good about helping other people score, feeling good about scoring, feeling good about playing the game was what motivated him. So, but better than that was he learned that lesson. And I just, I wonder how many times we 
unintentionally steal the joy out of our kids' lives and experiences by either rewarding them or attaching something where it takes the focus away from what it's truly about. I'm not saying you did that, Kathleen. I love that you were so intentional and you were able to have that, that awesome learning and teaching point. But I mean, I have have many stories too. I'm going to let Chad talk, but I just, the thing that I think really sticks out for me is how do we unintentionally kill our kids joy and motivation sometimes by focusing on the outcome or externally rewarding and taking that other whole huge aspect away which we probably think is our motivation is for our kid to succeed in whatever the description of success is and that's what we think our kid wants but it's actually our goal but it's not even really our goal it's just it's the western society's goal right well that's a whole other podcast that one isn't it (laughs) I did want to touch base on something else that that Lee spoke about um, is walking alongside your your children or your students. I believe that is so important. Um, I'm I'm with you, Karen, on video games. I had three older brothers. I never understood the love. I never understood why anybody would want to sit in front of a TV in front of a screen for hours, I was much more active. I, I just didn't understand. And at that, when I had three older brothers, I didn't care to play with any one of them, video games. I now have a preteen son. I am learning. I've, I've learned about Fortnite. I've learned about different video games. I can tell you a bit about it. I've yes sat down and I've listened to it. And I've watched what you do and while I'm being taught by my 12-year-old son, he is proud to be teaching me. Mm-hmm. And I've, I still don't love video games. Um, but what I did find really, really interesting when I opened my mind to it was it wasn't about how many kills they got. And, and that's what so many parents and so many people talk about video games. It's so bad. It's so violent. My kid wanted to get enough points to buy a suit. And that means you got different colored knapsacks, different colored outfits. And it really made me think, this is not much different than when I was a child and I had a Barbie doll and I wanted the different outfits on this doll and put them on and went, oh, this is great. And then take them off and put another one on. This is great, take it off. And if I ever said that to my son that, oh, this reminds me of Barbies, <laughs> he would be mortified. <laughs> but I, it made me understand more and be more open to it to say, ah, oh, this isn't about killing. I think this isn't about shooting somebody. This is about what you can see that you gain from it. And from a parent point of view, it was a real eye-opener and made me appreciate it more. It wasn't so much about the instant gratification that we all always think it is. If you sit down and I sat down and I listened to him and I watched what motivated him. And it was was a wonderful moment. And I still sit beside him and I still don't like video games. I think that is like, when we're talking what this thing called parenting is, 
that's a great moment of it right there of, you know, the curiosity for doing the work essentially to put yourself in a situation that you're not necessarily comfortable with, that you didn't really want, but you're doing it to woo your child, basically, right? To build that relationship, to do that gathering. There's a lot to take in with everybody talking there. I almost look at the Fortnite thing and I'm just like, wow, that, it's almost a great opportunity to teach financial literacy because hmm. you're, you're almost earning points and you're saving them up so you can actually buy something that's more meaningful to you. Like, you know, there's some really good aspects that I never really clued to me that the kids might be doing, like looking at all these things. And, you know, I can't emphasize that feeling. And if I look at my kids, motivation is a skill that we practice and we got to treat it like that, that practicing that motivation and seeing where it's coming from, whether it's a video game, whether it's a dance performance, whether it's a soccer pitch, you know, we, we got to look at it from a variety of perspectives. And I know we've been doing a lot of skiing, uh, during COVID, because that's at least one activity we could do a lot. And it's great as a family. But, you know, I look at my my youngest son, who's five, you know, a lot of times we have to motivate him to stay in the lineup. So he's got his fig bars in his <laughs> pocket so he can eat something. So he's not getting too impatient. But then there's motivation, like when he's skiing and he crashes hard and it's a great time to teach him about some resilience and, and not necessarily point to the crash, but look at what you were skiing down that process of what you accomplished and really pointing that piece out to him. Like, Hey, you just skied down this. Doesn't that feel good? Aren't you proud of yourself for doing that? And his mind immediately goes away from the, the crash and he realizes, yeah, I can get back up and I can do that again. You know, we want to check him over, make sure there's no broken bones, but you know, kids aren't made of glass, they're resilient, they'll bounce back. But really kind of pointing to those things of accomplishment, like, wow, you really worked hard to accomplish that. Not like, hey, you great, you got an A. You know, we're feeding that, that external motivation when we're focusing on that process instead of working them hard work, the feeling good, you know, all those things that really ultimately are going to build motivation and practice that motivation, but also build that resilience piece that we know that it is lacking in so many of our kids. And I'm always kind of really conscious of that with my kids is focusing on, whoa, yeah, you just crashed, but look at what you just did. Or looking at my daughter like, oh, wow, look at all the reading levels you've accomplished right now in, in the books you're working through. I, I just can't emphasize that process enough. And emphasizing that feeling so the kids are more self-aware of themselves and what they have to offer themselves from within inside. And I can attest to Chad's methodology because I went before COVID, I went skating with his class down at Robson Square and, and I hadn't skated for like over 10 years. And, and I did really great for like, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes. And then I wiped out and I fell pretty hard and I slightly dislocated my wrist and I, and I got back up and actually it was great because Chad's class, like all rushed over to me and were helping me up and everything. And they were really great. 
And afterwards, Chad said something along the lines of, oh, so this is good. Now you failed. That's out of the way. So now you're one step closer to getting this. And I was just like, oh, like it was just kind of reframing the whole failure moment. And, you know, rather than being devastated, like, oh, I totally fell. Moving it to your, you know, you're one step closer to succeeding. Now you've gained skill. I think that's what you said. You've actually just increased your skill level because you fell now. And I was just like, oh, wow. So yeah, it's, it's a good model. It's a good way of thinking. Yeah. And just probably one other point there is too, is like as adults, like how are we rule modeling it? I'm shocked at like how much of a class when I get up, I'm sorry, guys, I've made a mistake. And I say that to a class and I think it really throws them back mm-hmm. and, and have them correct me sometimes mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, I'm human. I make mistakes too. And and being okay with that and just kind of being vulnerable, uh, sort of speak to your class, to your kids and, and you kind of trying to role model the things that you're telling them to do, because ultimately if you're not doing it, they're not doing it. And that's a big piece of the whole puzzle of parenting is if you want your kids to be active, you want your kids to eat well, you want all these things like we got to somehow do it ourselves, And we know it's hard because we know the glass of wine at the end of the day feels good because that's what might be our motivation. But, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, how are we role modeling it within our own children and, and within the class when I'm in the classroom as well? And I think I also want to just pick up on the piece of practicing our motivation and, and doing all those things. It just, it made me think a little bit about some of the privilege that some of us have. Some of us have the privilege of having more supports than other people have. Some of us have, I feel like I have a privilege of having all of you here as my community to bounce these ideas off of. But if I didn't have any of you around, if I was completely isolated by myself, I think I would find it really challenging to practice motivation, to build it as a skill, to do all those things. And so I would say another tip on top of all of this is recruit either like-minded parents or recruit people that are challenging you to grow and think in, in what you're doing as a parent with whether it be about motivation or anything, because when we're missing that community piece and we're missing those supports, because some of us have lots of natural supports already and some of us don't. And so that can be a real piece and it's actually about privilege. And I like just figured that out lately because I used to be kind of upset about it sometimes about how some people could just so naturally build these practices or these skills or whatever. And then I realized, oh, they've got grandparent support so that they have downtime to be able to think that that space that for create creativity uh, and reflection that I was talking about before, or they have neighbors that are helping out and, you know, the neighbors are cooking each other meals or whatever. And there's all these little support pieces that not everybody has. And so if you don't have the financial back or the financial stability, you don't have the neighborhood stability, the family stability, all those different things. And it can be really challenging to to do this stuff. So I would say the first step is start recruiting people, even if it's just us as a podcast, as a way to check in and you're going out for your walk and you're listening to this and you're feeling connected to other parents, that's a form of of connecting and doing that recruiting piece. Or I guess it's actually quite similar to Ashley's term earlier, the gathering. It's gathering your tribe, your people, your support system around you is really important. I think, I think one more thing that 
I'm not sure we've touched on fully that I keep, I keep coming back around to is in terms of motivation, in ter- uh, I think accidental side effect of a lot of our external motivation are kids not daring to do things, kids not taking mm-hmm. risk. And I think the type of risk I'm talking about is not like cliff jumping on, you know, some place they're not supposed to cliff jump. Um, Yes, yes. Dangerous and risk-taking are are slightly different, but I think it's talking more about what you're talking about, Chad, where our kids are not made of glass. Actually, they are more resilient than we are. And a lot of the time we accidentally decondition them out of their resilience, I think. And part of what, what I'm also noticing is kids refusing to get in the ring unless they know they're going to be successful. So you talk about Chad, like your kid or Karen, even you like falls, you know, on the ski hill or, or ice skating and focusing not on the fall, but focusing on, wow, look how far you've come or look at that skill that you developed because of that fall. Or now we, you know, we've learned that when we take that corner that fast at this point, that that's just a little bit too much. We need to ease into it a little better or whatever, whatever that thing is. But the part of me that really gets frightened is either the, the photo op, the praise, the reward at the end, or the accolades given or the payment made only let kids try and dare to to do things that they're, they can develop. There's perfection or there's, there's something that they can guarantee success. And basically fear of failure, fear of failure. And I love that because we, we talk about failure a ton in the work that I do and how it's our opportunity to learn. And it is a necessary step of success. You must fail. And I think the other thing is the whole piece of we're supposed to be happy all the time. We're supposed to be good at everything and role modeling that. I love that. That is so important. And so as parents trying things that we are terrible at, (laughs) like you say, Karen, ice skating and falling on your butt. Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I'm terrible at that. And and if we're, and, and I think sometimes we forget because we have wisdom, we've done all of these things. We've gained this experience already. So we tend to naturally, especially if we're pressed for time, like you say, Karen, the privilege of supports. And if we don't have it, we Mm -hmm. tend to stick with our go-tos or our things that we're great at, or we're most comfortable in, but remembering to show our kids that we fail or that we suck Mm -hmm. at stuff too, Mm -hmm. or, and then, and a lot of what my kids learning in school, which I'm so excited about, because I talk about a lot with my, the youth I work with is the positive mindset, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm, I'm not an expert at this yet, or I'm still learning or, Hey, compared to last time, look at how far I've come. Imagine where I can be a year from now. Like these are sort of the the growth pieces where we're focusing on the process and it, nothing makes me more sad than when I see kids not go for things, not try things up, try out for that team or that dance class or that, that new skill or new hobby, because they're worried that they're going to be made fun of, or they're not going to be good enough at it. And somehow something's got into their mind that they have to be really good at something in order to enjoy it or participate. I wanted to say the fear of failure, the opposite of fear is love. And it's really the self-love piece that drives everything, that drives pure 
internal motivation. Uh, and I think self-love is probably a whole nother podcast that, uh, that we can talk about, but yeah, the, the opposite of fear and the opposite of fear of failure is self-love and being motivated from that self-love, uh, and that, that growth, which is very much growth mindset of what you were just talking about. And, and Ashley, I just, uh, one thing there too, that jumped out at me is like how often we just don't give kids a time to be bored as well, because mm-hmm. they lose the creativity, you know, everything I, I find in the educational setting is they're always kind of on display. And, mm-hmm. you know, we build these open concept schools, all these kids are on display. <laughs> so they don't have the courage to do something because of the display mm-hmm. and all the adolescent things that are come with that, you know, and self-consciousness that, you know, really, if you want to hone a skill or be and practice a skill, you need, you need privacy. You Mm -hmm. need, you need a safe private space where you're with a very select group of comfortable people. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to that creativity, you need boredom. Creativity is spurred on by boredom. And, you know, yeah, it made me really kind of think there about what are some things that we're really lacking. And I feel like we've got these great open concept schools, but we haven't created these safe space for kids to try something to fail in. I I like that you use the word safe as well, because that's how kids will see it. They won't see it as away from others. They'll, they'll feel it's how they'll feel if they're in a, in a space that there's not a lot of others where it's okay to fail and get back up again. That is a feeling of safe. I forgot to show you my adulting participation ribbons. So remember we joke about participation ribbons. So this one says, adulted really, really good. <laughs> That's awesome though. And then this is nope champion. This is a good one for me to say no. And then this is didn't order takeout, made real food. <laughs> so this is the generation of external, externally motivated people yeah. who are now adults. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know what? I think there's a place for that too. And even when Chad was talking about um, his son waiting in line, and but the, so he's getting external, externally motivated to stay in line by his fig bars, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah, there's so a place. there's a they, place for it. There is a place for it, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And like then, you said too, Kathleen, with your dancing, yeah, with the with your charts. Yeah, it, it is still making the brain connection. We're, mm-hmm. we're talking about the brain that the motivation is still being connected. It's just, are we abusing that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. External motivation isn't all bad. It, mm-hmm. It's got its place. It's just when it's exclusively the only way we motivate ourselves or, or our young people more so because as adults, we've already sort of become established in our, in our routines and our habits and motivation. But just saying that there needs to be more to that picture to fill it out. If we're wanting to produce internally motivated adults who are not exclusively attached to external rewards. 